Welcome to HMSC Connects, where we go behind the scenes of four Harvard museums to explore the connections between us, our big, beautiful world, and even what lies beyond. My name is Jennifer Berglund, part of the exhibits team here at the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture, and I'll be your host. I'm speaking with Adam Baldinger, the Curatorial Associate and Collections Manager of Invertebrate Zoology here at the Museum of Comparative Zoology at Harvard University. I was curious how he became interested in invertebrates in the first place and the meandering path that brought him into the museum collections. Here he is. Adam Baldinger, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Your adventures in science began with a small handheld microscope. Tell me that story. When I was quite young, my parents had given me things such as binoculars or even a handheld microscope. And I remember carrying that handheld microscope in a case on my belt around with me everywhere I went. And we lived out in a more foresty area in central Connecticut. And so I was oftentimes playing around little ponds or streams or in the woods around my house. And every opportunity I had to look at something under that microscope, I took advantage of that. Most of the time, I had no idea what I was looking at. And I realized that the things that were really small were interesting to me. But I also quickly realized that larger things like garter snakes certainly were something that I was not too fond of. So it was a lot of fun. I remember looking at things, even drops of water or little animals that may have been in that water, or even at the surface of a penny or something I could get under that microscope. So I remember doing that as much as I could. What was it about the little things? There was things that I couldn't see with my eye. I knew they were there and I, there was something about them that interested me. And I remember just wanting to learn more about them. Obviously seeing birds and other animals around me that you could study them without using microscopes or other pieces of equipment. And I just was curious as to what was in those areas in those water and the leaf litter that was around my house and things like that. Later on, you went to school to study biology. Do you think that was really the thing that inspired you to go into the field? I think it was just my natural world around me that intrigued me. And I wanted to learn more about the things that were living around me. I think be it little puffball fungi or things that were growing on leaves, they were just of interest to me. I think it kind of led me in that direction. I'm not sure if it was ultimately those really young days of exploring the forest and woods around my house. Eventually, you became interested in invertebrates. What was it about them that originally intrigued you? Invertebrates are a group of animals that one would call that lack a backbone. And it's essentially they lack a vertebral column. And so many invertebrates like insects or crabs or lobsters or sponges are corals. These are all different types of invertebrates, basically animals that lack a backbone. I decided to go to college. I ended up at Eastern Connecticut State University where I thought I would pursue a degree in medical technology. The spring semester of my freshman year, I had to take a course called Organismal Biology that was taught by Dr. Michael Gable. And in that course, we covered everything from bacteria to humans. 
and we talked about different organisms in lecture, but also saw them in lab. We observed these specimens in jars or in petri dishes. In those days, we didn't have videos or we didn't have YouTube videos of all these different animals that we can see today. They weren't very common. I realized that I was kind of interested in those particular animals in those jars. But after the class ended, and a few days later, we left for Bermuda, where I took another course, an island biology course, also taught by Mike Gable. And we would collect live invertebrates, bring them back to the lab. Then I began to see some of the animals that were living compared to the animals that I saw just a few weeks ago in lab. And ultimately, I think it was these animals called caprellids or skeleton shrimp. They're actually a type of amphipod. Seeing them alive and doing what they do, it just intrigued me. And I was like, wow, I would need to really look more into a study more about these different types of invertebrates. Jumping ahead a few semesters, also at Eastern Connecticut State University, I ended up working in Mike Gable's lab. And my first role in that lab was to transfer specimens that were preserved in methanol into ethanol. And I had to pick up every animal, every piece of animal, and put them in one jar to the next. I started asking questions. What are these things? It turns out they were amphipods that Mike Gable had been studying. Sooner or later, I realized I was involved in a research project with him where we were looking to describe the females of an amphipod species from Bermuda in which only the males were known. In order to do this type of work, we had to travel to the Peabody Museum of Natural History, where I met my colleague, Eric Lazawazam, who actually is the collections manager of invertebrate zoology there. So the Peabody Museum of Natural History is a sister institution, if you will, to the Museum of Comparative Zoology. And while there, Eric would show me specimens in their collection so we could compare it to the animals that we had that I was studying in Mike Gable's lab. And sooner or later, I began to see other invertebrates in the department and all the different types of animals that were on the shelves and the things that he would tell me about, uh, interesting stories about those particular animals. I remember thinking specifically to myself, huh, maybe I'm going to have Eric's job someday. And I think that's kind of the beginnings for me for invertebrate zoology. It turns out that Mike, Eric, and I are still colleagues today. You know, what kind of intrigued me about the invertebrates is what made them unique? How are they different from each other? And I quickly mm -hmm. realized that I had a keen eye on being able to tell the minute differences between different species of, let's say, amphipods or other invertebrates. And so that was the intriguing part to me, is being able to differentiate different species based upon these minute characters that would define these different taxa or different groups of invertebrates. What kinds of features are we talking about? Oftentimes when you're distinguishing or determining differences between, let's say, two sister species of amphipods, it oftentimes is the positioning of spines or the positioning of certain seedy. These are hair-like structures that are found in different parts of the animal. Sometimes the general morphology of the body itself, sometimes pigmentation patterns, differences, of course, between males and females. These are some of the differences that we're investigating to determine these different species. Eventually, you decide to go to grad school. And what were you originally going to grad school for? Marine biology. And so in the fall of 1989, you were just starting grad school in San Francisco. And you might say an earthquake changed your life or shook your world. What happened and how did it set you on the course that you're on currently? It sure did. This earthquake did affect my life dramatically. I just drove across country to start grad school at San Francisco State University 
just within a few weeks or so, in mid-October, we experienced the Loma Prieta earthquake, which affected the entire Bay Area. I was in my dorm beginning to get ready to watch the World Series between the Oakland A's and San Francisco Giants, and suddenly I got knocked down onto the floor. I had no idea what was going on. My roommates came to me and said, we got to get out. So I grabbed my keys and my wallet. And next thing you know, we were outside of my dorm. Turns out my dorm was ultimately condemned. And I was essentially yes. homeless, essentially homeless mm -hmm. for a week or so. And it turns out that, you know, during that week, there was a lot of people that were obviously affected by this earthquake. And so not having to go to classes or whatever, I found myself at a building next door to my dorm that housed many senior citizens. And I spent a few days here and there helping some of these people clean up their apartments in which virtually all of their life has fallen onto the floor. So that was pretty dramatic to me. And I wasn't overly concerned about getting back to my physics class, for example. And so ultimately what I decided to do is take a semester off. So I went back to Connecticut. And then in June of that year, I married my wonderful wife, Sandra. And then together that following fall, we headed back to San Francisco where not only I was able to continue with my graduate degree, she was also working towards her pharmacology degree as well. Being there, I had to work. And so naturally, I reached out to my colleague, Eric, and he put me in contact with a colleague, a herpetologist, in fact, at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco. And lo and behold, I arrived in the Department of Invertebrate Zoology and Geology at the California Academy of Sciences. And they had a full-time job opening. I applied for that position, and within weeks, I was working under an NSF grant to digitize their nudibranch mollusk collection. Nudibranchs, oftentimes, they're referred to as sea slugs, but there's some, they're a type of mollusk. Many of them are shellless mollusks that live in the marine environment, mostly intertidal, and some really beautiful coloration associated with all these different types of nudibranchs. Ultimately, this earthquake, a really horrible situation dramatically affected my course in life and ultimately my career in a museum setting. How did you end up back on the East Coast? I completed my master's degree at San Francisco State University, continuing to work at the California Academy of Sciences. And that was about five years. And when my wife finished her degree, we had decided to move back to Connecticut. So we left San Francisco, arrived back in Connecticut. And for a period of time, while she was working on her fellowship, I was bartending. I was an adjunct faculty member teaching various labs at various universities. But after two years or so, my wife applied for a job up here in Boston at Massachusetts College of Pharmacy. And so having the opportunity to travel to Boston, she said, well, come with me. And I asked, well, what am I going to do? And she says, get a job. So I arrived <laughs> at the MCC, the Museum of Comparative Zoology, to meet a colleague who I had known via email, Artis Johnston, actually is my predecessor here at the MCC. She wasn't here, but the curator was, Dr. Downett McHugh. And I spoke with her for a few minutes, told her about my situation, and told her a little bit about my past history working at the California Academy of Sciences. This was a Friday. And then the following Monday, I received a call from artists, if I recall, who offered me a part-time position in IZ or invertebrate zoology at the MCC. That was April or so, and I was still teaching. 
So I had another few weeks left to finish the semester. And in that period of time, I got a call from HR here in OEB. And Mary Reynolds asked me to apply for a curatorial associate position in Malachology. I came up back to the MCC, interviewed with Ken Boss, and I was ultimately offered a full-time position as a curatorial associate in Malachology in June of 1997 is when I started here at the MCC. Malachology is the study of mollusks, so snails, octopus, squid, scallops, things like that. So here at the MCZ, the malachology department is separate, its own department, as opposed to, say, the entomology collection and the rest of the invertebrates and invertebrate zoology. At some point down the line, you ended up managing both the invertebrate zoology collections and the malachology collections. How in the world did that come about? When I arrived at the MCZ, I had a part-time position offered to me in invertebrate zoology, but I also had a full-time position offered to me as collections manager or curatorial associate in malacology. I had a hard time deciding which position to take, but naturally the full-time position was something that I needed to do. But I felt like I was obligated to work in IZ, considering they were the first department to offer me the position. So for two years, I worked one day a week in invertebrate zoology and four days a week as the collections manager of malacology. Eventually, it got to be a little much, and so I just stayed as the collections manager of malacology. And then in 2008, Artis retired, and I applied for the curatorial associate position in invertebrate zoology. Fortunately, I was offered that position. And so since 2008 till just last year, I was managing both departments as the curatorial associate. So it turns out it was actually good timing, but after 25 years of managing malacology, there was a decision to actually replace my role as the collections manager of malacology. And so today, uh, now I'm just the collections manager, curator associate of invertebrate zoology. How did you juggle both of those things for that amount of time? That seems like a lot. Yeah, it was a lot, but you know, I managed and I was involved in many, many projects, but Unfortunately, I was only able to touch the surface of much of these projects. So now not managing both departments, I'm able to get into some of the deeper aspects of these various projects that I've been working on. It wasn't easy to manage both departments, but it really was the people working in the departments that helped me do what we need to do and to get the job done. What are these projects that you're able to get involved in now that you're just with invertebrate zoology? One of my bucket list things to do as a collections manager or a museum professional was to get an NSF grant to digitize or do something with our collections. So the first thing I was able to do was get involved in writing an NSF grant, and turns out it was funded. And these grants that we applied for jointly with other institutions was to digitize or catalog or computerize or database, however you want to call it specific aspects of our various collections that haven't been recorded in our database or the data has been captured in our database. So one of the major projects was to, first of all, for me, is to get a grant. And turns out I got three of them and we had concurrent grants going on. These are some of the deeper projects, I should say, that are projects that are going on in the MCZ over and above the typical responsibilities and things that we do on a daily basis. What's the importance of digitizing a collection? Can you talk about that a little bit? Specimens that we have in our collections have been around some cases for 100, 120, 130 years. And they're on a shelf 
And today, myself or others may just realize that specimen is on the shelf, but no one else knows it's there until we actually digitize it. And I say digitize, what we do is we take the collection data, who collected it, when it was collected, where it was collected, and we add that information to our database. And then that data can be shared by people at Harvard, but actually from people all over the world who are interested in studying biodiversity, ecology, or need to have data of particular species or specimens that they're researching. So it's important to get this data into a database so that it can be used by other people and other researchers. Of course, you know, sitting on a shelf here at Harvard at the MCZ, this is great, but it's actually the other information, the data associated with it that we want to share with other researchers so they can continue and use our specimens for their research. There are a number of uncatalogued specimens in the collection. Can you explain why that is? Cataloging is a situation where we assign a unique number to a specimen or a specimen lot. That is a record of where that animal was collected, when it was collected, and what the taxonomic name is. And so there are many specimens in our collection that haven't been identified yet. So there's a missing piece of information. So therefore, it may not be cataloged. There's many specimens in our collection where we have hundreds and hundreds of these, and it just takes time to capture the data associated with this particular specimen and either catalog it in the old days by handwriting it in a ledger or nowadays putting the information to a data spreadsheet. So capturing historical data, where we have to take information from a label that's inside a jar, takes much longer than if we were to get specimens today from a researcher that's gonna provide us a spreadsheet with data, identifications, coordinate data, and we can basically upload that to our database much easier than trying to read a label from someone who wrote this label 100 years ago and their handwriting is bad or the labels deteriorate a little bit. And what? also the names, the species names change as we get more information about relationships between different animals. Sometimes a cataloged name does not match the actual name. It'll be in a completely different genus or a different family. You can't count on the labels from 100 years ago. Absolutely. But there's information on that label that is usable. And we could take that taxonomic name that, in fact, may be outdated or it's been a synonym of something else. But the truth is, is we have other databases and other resources where someone who's actually recorded that information, this species that's written on a label from 100 years ago, is actually a synonym of this current species. And that's put into a database. And this database that I'm referring to, the acronym is WORMS, but it's actually the World Registry of Marine Species. So we can look up that old name in this database, and it will give us the current name. And we can use that database to upload data to our existing database. Everyone studying zoology, and not everyone, but people studying zoology are reliant on other databases like ours for distribution information about a species or we can utilize other databases like worms to get information about the taxonomy associated with different species. Over the years, you've had the opportunity to name a number of organisms. How did those opportunities come about, and how did you choose the names? I've had the ability and have been fortunate to be able to study groups of amphipods with my colleagues, Mike Gable and Eric Lazawazam over the past 20, 25, 30 years. And as part of our research program, we have identified places where amphipods are not very well known. 
like Bermuda or the British Virgin Islands. And so we have the opportunity to travel to those places to specifically collect amphipods, to bring them back to our lab so we can study them further. This is a way to acquire animals so we can then continue our research to describe the biodiversity of these particular areas. I've had park rangers, let's say, from Death Valley National Park write to me asking me, hey, can you take a look at these amphipods that I found and if you could identify them or tell me a little bit more about them. And by looking at these animals that my colleagues and I collect, let's say in Bermuda or those from this park ranger, you start to look at them and begin to realize well, there's something unique about them. There's something different about them. And then suddenly something goes off in your head and you're like, oh, this is a new species. It's just a super exciting feeling knowing that you have something unique based upon the animals that you've collected, but also comparing it to other animals, let's say, in collections and literature and things like that. So those are the opportunities to get the animals. And so from there, we then will continue to do what we need to do to formally describe these specimens as new species. Sometimes the light goes off in your head and say, yeah, this is a new species. Immediately, I begin to think, well, what are we going to call it? What's the name going to be? And oftentimes, we'll determine what a species name is based upon where it's found, for example, or maybe a certain characteristic of the animal itself. For example, we found a species in Bermuda where it's living in an area that has a high current, a lot of water flow. And so we decided to name the species Tacarillo, so Podoceros tacarillo, referring to swift moving water. I described a species from Death Valley National Park, and I named it Hialella Muerta, or Muerta, however you want to say that, but in reference to death from the Death Valley National Park. I named another species called Hialella marispinosa, and this is referring to the spines on this segment, this leg segment called the maris, the fourth segment. So there's spines on this particular segment that is only found in this species, but not in any others. So I decided to call it marispinosa. Truthfully, the ones that I like the most are the ones where you name species after people, people who have affected mm-hmm. me career. For example, I named a species with a colleague called Podoceros jerechii, and this is named after Henry Jerecki, which is the owner of this small island in the British Virgin Islands. So I named it in honor of him because he allowed us to go to his island to collect these animals to study the amphipods of that particular region. I named mm-hmm. another species Podoceros lazawazami. That's a tongue twister, but that's <laughs> named after my colleague Eric Lazawazam in honor of him for all the support and work that we've been able to do as colleagues. But probably the Mm. most significant for me was a species that I named after my wife, Hialella Sandra. And that species Mm. is actually to thank her for all the work and support Mm. she has put up with over the years as the work (laughs) that I do. It's not the prettiest looking animal, but I think it's a unique scenario to have a species named after you. What does it look like? It looks like a little shrimp, if you will. And we're Mm -hmm. talking that's only about less than 10 millimeters in size. Very, very small. About the width of a penny. About the width of a penny. Okay. They're called amphipods and they're often referred to as shrimp-like, but they're not really shrimp. Many of the amphipods that I work on from the marine intertidal area, a lot of people think of these as beach fleas or sand fleas. They're Mm. really not fleas at all. They're beach hoppers or what we call amphipods. So how does your wife feel about being named after a small little flea-like organism? I would like to believe that she thinks it's a high honor, but certainly Mm -hmm. in taxonomy, 
taxonomy or people who work in systematics recognize that when a species is named after somebody, there's an honor there, usually thanking someone for their work and support. Like I said, it's not a beautiful bird with beautiful colored feathers and things. It's an amphipod and it's no coloration. To me, it's a beautiful animal. Don't think that she thinks it's particularly good looking either. But as a woman of science, I'm sure she appreciates it. I would hope so. Don't you acquire the specimens that come from the Nautilus, from the Ocean Exploration Trust? So the Nautilus is a research vessel, and the Ocean Exploration Trust was founded by the oceanographer Bob Ballard, who we've talked about in this podcast a couple times. But they have a submarine that is constantly going down to deep parts of the ocean and bringing things back up to the surface. And the things they bring up, right, many of them end up in our collections at the MCD. Yes, you're absolutely right. We have been fortunate to work and partner with OET and the EV Nautilus Group to have voucher material that they collect uh, to be deposited here in the invertebrate zoology department, but also malacology and fishes as well. We've had this relationship or this partnership for 10 years now. So starting in 2013, we were beginning to receive voucher material from various expeditions that took place. Specimens were either invertebrates, uh, various invertebrates, mollusks, sometimes fishes. They were collected by the Nautilus and then sent to us here at the MCZ. And I think we've cataloged close to 5,000 specimen lots from them for the past 10 years. Many people are aware of the Nautilus because they do live feeds and people can see the live animals in the field. And then they end up here at the MCZ and we'll upload pictures of those animals that were taken aboard ship or here at our labs, for example. And those pictures are available on our database. We've been very fortunate to have that partnership with OET and EV Nautilus. And it's continuing. Just this year, we've already received samples from three different expeditions and we try our best when we receive them, they get them database cataloged as soon as we can. I'm talking within months. So those specimens that people have saw on a live video feed just a few weeks ago, for example, are now available for researchers and others to view in our database and so forth. Wow, that's fast. Yeah. We don't want the specimens on our shelves for 100 years before they become digitized. What's your favorite part of the job? I have the opportunity daily, almost daily, to see some really cool specimens sitting on the shelves, hitting in cabinets, or even on display in the public museum, for example. I really enjoy that, and don't get me wrong. But the truth is, it's the people that I've been able to work with over the past 26 years here at the MCC that I find my most favorite part of the job. I've had the opportunity to have lunch with past directors of the MCC, like Ernst Mayer and Jim Mm -hmm. McCarthy. Jim Hankin, and of course, Gonzalo Girabet. I've met hundreds and hundreds of researchers who have come to the MCZ to use our collections for their research. So I very much enjoy hearing about their research projects and how they're using our specimens that we're helping them with. I've given hundreds of tours to small children and their parents, students and classes. I've given tours to virtually anyone who wants to come to the MCZ to see what we're doing. And I really enjoy hearing things like, oh, so cool, or I want to work at the MCZ just because of the opportunity that I've provided them on that tour. I've had the opportunity to work with hundreds of interns, hourly employees, part-time staff members, full-time staff members, curatorial assistants in the department. And I realized that all those people that I've worked with over the years 
they have this passion for museum work. They're here. Some of them have been here only a few months. I work with other curatorial assistants who have been here for over 30 years. And we all have that same passion. It's the museum environment, first of all, but it's also the specimens that we are working with on a daily basis. And the truth is, it's these curatorial assistants that keep this department going and doing what we can do to support the overall mission of the MCZ. And to sit along a curatorial assistant and looking at a specimen in a jar, and I think I know what it is, but I'll turn it back on them. And I'll say, well, let's talk about that. What do you think it is? And they nail it. And it's so exciting to me to see them with this glow in their eye. Hey, I was able to identify something in our collection and put my thumbprint on that particular jar. One of my favorite things, again, of course, is I hope that I can influence other people to continue in museum work. And then someday they could be doing research on specimens and things like that. So we really do have a poor team, a really strong team here in vertebrate zoology, and of course, a close relationship with the staff at Malacology. But I have to say, I guess daily, one of my most favorite things about coming to work every day is when I arrive at the parking garage and I see above me, welcome to Harvard. And I drive under that and I realize, hey, I'm here. Who would have thought that I would have ever ended up as a collections manager of vertebrate zoology at the Museum of Comparative Zoology. I am very, very thankful for the opportunity to be able to do this job. It's always been such a pleasure to work with you. Well, thanks, Jenny. (laughs) I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure working with you. Do you have a favorite specimen? No, I don't really have a favorite specimen. It really changes daily, honestly. I've had favorite specimens this week and favorite specimens last week, but I think they're all cool one way or another, and they all seem to have a story behind them. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of times, if it's something that was discussed in the news, I'll go take a look at it or something along those lines, and that could become my favorite specimen that day. I have to say I'm biased towards amphipods. Those are kind of the animals that I'm most interested in, but it's really hard to show. I have to say, skeleton shrimp are super cool. I feel like they kind of look like those inflatable creatures that people use to advertise tires, like the dancing creatures. I feel like they kind of look like them. It's true. I mean, when I was in college, we didn't have video of these things. You know, you had them in a jar and you had a picture, but there was a still picture. Very few movies, very few videos. Mm -hmm. And so to see them in the wild, it just blew me away. And They're cool. They're fun. And especially now you see videos of them and hanging out together on colonies doing their thing, you know, and it's just uh, (laughs) pretty cool. Do you have specimens that are popular, specimens that everybody wants to see? We have specimens that I always pull out on tours. And one specimen, in fact, I gave a tour earlier today that people tend to like and want to see more of are coconut crabs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have some pretty sizable ones in our collection, but we also have coconut crabs in our collection that were collected from the 1870s. Yeah. So there's a historical component. And they're component. huge, like gigantic hermit crabs. Correct. The ones we have are not as big as they seem to be in the pictures I've seen, but when you can pull out a, a three-gallon bucket and inside is a coconut crab, it's pretty it's impressive. crazy. I like showing the coconut crabs in invertebrate zoology, obviously the bathonomus, the giant isopods, mm. the deep water isopods. Those are big animals too. People have a tendency to move towards seeing you know, larger animals, so large crabs, and certainly the giant isopods that we have in our collection. Some of them are almost a foot in length. They're like giant roly polies. Yeah, I always have fun with the kids. They know it's a roly poly 
and they always think roly-polies are in their backyard. So I joke with them, hey, dig deep enough, you might find a few of these larger <laughs> animals. Because we're in invertebrate zoology, I sometimes will show our medicine leech, for example, and talk a little bit about what a medicine leech is. And it's not overly impressive when you look at leeches in a jar, but it's always a fun story to tell behind it. If I had the time, when, especially on tours, to be able to pull out a couple of caprellas and put them under a microscope, I'm sure some people would be interested, but they would be more interested in seeing a video of these, mm -hmm. I think. In malacology, there was always things to show, like the carrier shells. I don't know if you know what these are, but they're in this group called Xenophoridae, and they glue pieces of other organic material, or inorganic material for that matter, pieces of rock on the surface of their shell to act as what we think as camouflage or maybe even strengthen the shell to give them some support. So there's always fun stories to tell, and there's always these animals that we'll pull out as part of our tours. But really, it's a matter of what they're interested in. If they want to see some corals, let's go look at some corals. If they mm -hmm. want to see some marine worms, like today, I pulled out a sea mouse. I don't know if you know it, but it's a type of polychaete, mm -hmm. a worm thing. Pretty cool. I wanted just to comment as part of my job having the opportunity to send specimens out on loan. And mm -hmm. by doing such, some researchers have felt as though that just by receiving specimens on loan, these turned out to be new species or something along those lines. And one time I was basically added as a co-author on a paper because I simply sent this researcher specimens on loan. And that was part of my job, but I'm so grateful that he included me as a co-author. Or another scenario right. where I sent specimens on loan to a researcher, and turns out it was a new species, and he named that species after me just because I sent him a loan. This was a small, small marine snail from Martinique. But anyhow, people are grateful for what we do when they're unable to actually visit the museum. And we do spend mm -hmm. a lot of time gathering specimens, sending them to various places around the world, which requires oftentimes tremendous amount of paperwork, permits and all this. But once they're able to study them and they do the same thing I did, they, what am I gonna call it? And so in this mm -hmm. case, I was pretty honored to have a species named after me, probably more than my wife. Adam Baldinger, thank you so much for being here. This has been really fun. Absolutely. Thank you, Jenny. It was a pleasure. Today's HMSC Connects podcast was edited by Eden Piacitelli and produced by me, Jennifer Berglund, and the Harvard Museums of Science and Culture. Special thanks to the Museum of Comparative Zoology and to Adam Baldinger for his wisdom and expertise. And thank you so much for listening. If you like today's podcast, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you in a few weeks.